you could just put it on Git or something, and we could all uh, simultaneously edit it and push it back. Yes! The best! We should have a Git repo for the show notes. Absolutely. I love that. That's hilarious. Because we're not actually a tech podcast. I just feel that sharing text files on the internet should be simpler than this. (laughs) I mean, I feel like your computer shouldn't be haunted, Alison, but like... We my, we work with what we've got. Honestly, isn't haunted. Um, I mean, none of the evidence supports that perspective. <laughs> yeah, Definitely okay. haunted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very eighth episode of the Octothorpe podcast, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Betty. And we have a raft of letters of comment this week. We're very sorry. We did not correctly set up our email forwarding, and that means that we had inadvertently ignored all emails for the last two months. So, we've got a lot to and talk thanks about. very much to listener Claire Briley of Croydon, who pointed this out to us helpfully. Also, when you say we failed to set up our email, John. I'm blaming John. I mean, to be fair, none of us checked and we probably should have done. <laughs> it's true. I probably should not just blame John. We can leave that bit out. I will not blame John personally for our rudeness, but for other things. <laughs> it's probably mostly my fault. Right then, so, from the top, our first email of comment was on the 13th of April 2020, which at the time of recording is two months and four days ago, and it is from one Andrew January of Reading, and he says that he came across a website that does special video chat, and you move around in a 2D space, and as you get near people, you can have group video chats with them. And it lets you kind of treat a big group gathering on the internet as a kind of um, space rather than just a kind of set of rooms as in Zoom or a set of channels as in Discord. He doesn't mention what the name of the website was. Um, We did talk about something a little bit similar to this last episode, which was Kala. Um, But yeah, that sounds cool. Wouldn't it be cool if it was 3D and you could do it in VR on your VR headset? That would be awesome. I have been very sad to not discover. I was expecting to go into the Oculus store and find all manner of VR experiences of this kind, but they don't appear to exist yet. I don't really want to spend an entire evening with my VR headset on, much as I love it. It's quite heavy and not entirely conducive. And it would be hard to like drink. One of the things I do on these Zoom chats is drink. And I cannot drink and play Oculus Quest at the same time. I would need to drink my beer with a straw. And you know there, that gets you. I think we did on a previous podcast, I think Liz suggested one of those beer hats. I was going to suggest that again because it's such a good idea. A VR headset with integrated beer hat. I may need one of these. Yes. I'm going to be a billionaire. If Andrew has seen this thing has he actually seen it used for a large event because i feel like there's a number of people saying well there's a proof of concept of these things but i'm not sure to what extent 
they actually exist and also whether they've uh, whether whether they're actually being used for large events or whether they're just kind of tech demos i'm also slightly worried that the problem we've talked about before that it's very it's relatively easy in a physical conversation to say this is amazing but i absolutely have to go to the loo now um is much harder in these video conferencing chats and it and it can be hard to just kind of slip off the edge of one of them without people kind of noticing especially if they then see from their vr environment that you're engaged in conversation with more interesting people across the room differently interesting it's a <laughs> good save it's i suppose hard to hide at the other end of the bar when it's a 2d space with no hiding places um but i've done i've done kind of abrupt goodbyes from zoom calls and people don't seem to have been too offended so i don't i don't know i think people are usually pretty chill about maybe i'm wrong but i feel like people are pretty chill about that kind of thing right on to letter of comment two so this is from mark olson uh on the 25th of april 2020 um and he says that he stumbled across us and listened to our first podcast um, which he enjoyed, but he does say that he thinks we might want to mention the date because he did not read it, uh, sorry, he did not listen to it um, close to the time of recording, and so some of it didn't make a lot of sense. And I, if you remember, episode one, had we had not fully gone into lockdown yet, so a lot of it was immediately rendered um, quite dated. Um, Today but yes. is Wednesday the 17th of June 2020. It is. Um, and this show will probably be going out on the 24th of June, I'd guess. Oh, yes, we're recording early. That's kind of showing behind the curtain, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. But yeah, he, 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 we, we were talking in episode one about um, the lack of a written constitution for EasterCon. And he mentions the Lunarians, which were New York fandom. And uh, I did not appreciate this. Um, but because of a series of very, very rigidly defined rules in the club constitution, the club was invalid because they had not sent notice of elections, which meant the old officers' terms had expired. The new officers had been improperly elected because the notices had not been sent out. And so there were no officers. There was no secretary. So there was no one who could send out a notice of any elections. And so there could no be there could never be any new officers. And therefore the club stopped. And this was a club with fewer than 20 people, all of whom saw each other frequently. So there is a sort of risk in having rigorously defined systems, which is if you don't have the imagination to foresee the way in which the system could go wrong, you can end up painting yourself into rather a corner. Um, The problem was solved by forming a new club called Lunarians 2.0 and that failed because they couldn't agree about who they would let into the new club so it stopped i have thoughts about this which will come later in the episode with regards to the wasps business meeting this year um but it is a cautionary tale and one i would encourage people to listen to i particularly liked his phrase of the club was what did he say the club accumulated noxious dead wood. <laughs> um, and I wouldn't like to comment as to whether that applies to the World Science Fiction Society. This just feels a bit like, you know, when I have an account on a website somewhere and then I forget my password and forget to update the email address and basically just have to make a new account all over again. Just keep making new 
clubs called Lunarians 2.0, 3.0, 3.14, whatever you like, just go for it. Yes, there's a good good way of dealing with it, I think. I think there's a spectrum of fandom and you can tell which end I'm on. Yeah, the east end. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've always been on the spectrum of fandom that said we shouldn't really organise anything. And I mean, we can st- we can organise stuff in the sense of making things happen. It's just the point where you decide that it's easier to make things happen with a written constitution. I'm always slightly sceptical about because in my experience, um, things of that kind tend to be used in order to prevent things from happening rather than making them happen. And anyone who is a co-host on the Octothought podcast will know how true it is that Alison is opposed to formal organisation of things. That, that's harsh. It is harsh. I don't regret it, but it is harsh. To be fair, when John got in touch and said, are you interested in doing a podcast? I did warn him about this at that exact point. I knew what I was getting into, it's true. Mark also wrote to us to comment on later episodes so he said that he thought our point about fandom doing virtual socializing from day one was quite perspective and um commented on our talking about the first thursday and then talked about con zealand and he is i think quite skeptical of con zealand because he isn't convinced that you can have a time zone which sufficiently sort of encompasses everyone who needs to be encompassed because you need to encompass kind of traditional world con fandom in the US but also you need to encompass um, New Zealand fandom obviously because it's a New Zealand con and so on Um, and he also says that he's sceptical of having programming for such thing because you need to have enough program that you can call it a world con but not so much programming if if you have if you have a level of programming that won't tire people out it will feel like a much smaller con and he basically concludes by saying this that he's not criticizing con zealand's um competence he's just not sure that it's a workable proposition in any way i th- i think since he wrote that stuff like Baldicon has happened which has shown that you can i think um get around some of those problems quite well um, but it's an interesting take as to kind of at what point do you sort of change things enough to make it workable online to the point where it doesn't really feel as big as a Worldcon should anymore. Yes, I think a lot of the points Mark raises have possibly been addressed by other virtual conventions in the meantime. So if Mark is not too upset with us for failing to read his emails in a timely fashion and he has any updates, we'd love to hear them. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think. I think you can cat herd. I mean, we can cat herd panellists to showing up in the right rooms at the right time, just about. And in the case of the Easter Con, usually by bribing them with a free beer if they'd like that. So I'm sure you can you can get them to show up for the right Zoom. You might just need a team of Zoom wranglers. Yes. And uh, send beer sort of to panellists through various delivery services. Mm-hmm. And I also think about the Hugos, I think part of the problem with the Hugos is you do have this tension between providing the best experience for people in the room and also providing a good experience for people watching online at home. And possibly if you're only trying to do one of those things at once, it will simplify things immensely. That is fair. That's a good point. Alison, do you have anything you'd like to say? I've I've promised to myself I'm going to be quieter this week. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, firstly, episode title, so that's great. Secondly, uh, we we like you talking. It's it's a key part of our shtick is that we talk. But actually, I feel I've I've probably said all I've got to say about Con Zealand until I see the draft program and their draft plans for social space, at which point I expect to have enormous amounts to say. So I am <laughs> I am holding my fire on that. Um, but I did like his final thing saying um, that we seemed very reasonable and are we sure we're fans? <laughs> uh, yes, that did make me chuckle. I liked that. We've definitely disproved that in subsequent episodes, haven't we? <laughs> yep, yep. Well, we've 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 proven our lack of reasonability both in terms of um having had very wide sweeping wide sweeping wide ranging opinions on future episodes, uh, but also by having not done a reasonable job of reading letters of comment. So we've <laughs> neatly put ourselves straight back into the fan category. Also, I will say I uh, edited out all of the really acrimonious bits, obviously. So <laughs> it's very easy to be reasonable when you can edit out the arguments afterwards. Yes, I was going to. I, I meant to say it's clearly we're clearly reasonable in the edit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Andrew Hogg sent us an email on the nineteenth of May. And he um, he was worried that we're mispronouncing Claire Briley of Croydon's surname because he remembers hearing it differently while watching a stream of the 2011 Hugo Awards and wouldn't want any of us to be embarrassed publicly by getting it wrong. I am 99% certain we are pronouncing Claire Briley's surname correctly um, because I have been harangued on that matter on many times, for, on many occasions. When I gave Claire her Hugo Award, I pronounced her surname incorrectly. Um, and so if I ever win my own Hugo Award, my entire acceptance speech will just be to say her name correctly and then moonwalk off the stage. Can you moonwalk? No, I'm going to have to learn okay, to moonwalk. Okay, so you better get practising then, hadn't you? I'm not going to win a Hugo, Alison, so I'm not sure it's going to come up. Are you a Hugo finalist? I am, as mentioned by Mark Plummer in his letter of comment from the 23rd of May 2020, which is addressed to Dear Alison Liz and Hugo Award finalist The Boy Coxon. Dr. Hugo Award finalist The Boy Coxon. That's me. That is you. <laughs> and so he says he's enjoying the Octothought podcast, which is good. And he also asked whether or not we could give ourselves names as according to the style of the kids tv show octonauts in which there are characters called vegemals which are half animal and half vegetable hence tunip is half tuna half turnip and caprica is half carp and half paprika so tell me about octothought octonauts i i know nothing of this uh it's a children's program about basically a crew of underwater explorers who are all animals and they go on they have like they have like a set of vehicles a bit like thunderbirds um nice and then they go on adventures and i haven't really watched it in that much detail but apparently it is like scientifically accurate about all its underwater adventures and they also for some reason have these things which are half animal half vegetable and all their names are like a you know mashup of the two names so uh, what's a good one? Albachoy is half bok choy, half albacore. According to Wikipedia, anyway. It's good, isn't it? 10 out of 10. 
I could be had had tato. Half haddock, half potato. That's pretty good. Yeah, I was proud. Or, hmm. Try to think what my favourite... My favourite fish is definitely haddock. But what's my favourite vegetable? Courgette. Hadette. Hadette. Um, yeah. So, is that good? I think that's pretty good. Are we limited to vegetables only or can we have fruit? No, it's vegetables only, isn't it? Hmm. But it does say animals. It doesn't necessarily say it has to be fish. That's true, but I mean... Just both of the examples of fish. Uh, generally, the, the theme of the show is fish-related. I say I've only, I've only okay. seen like snippets of octonauts uh, when babysitting children who loved octonauts. That is fair. I have never seen any octonauts, but feel I should now go and look them up. Maybe we should have a special episode next week. About octonauts. And I'm going to be a crab to choke. Yes. Nailed it. Oh, great name. That is a flipping great name. Love it. Okay. Straight in the show. But Alison, have you got a octonauts name? I have been thinking about this. I may have to return to you next week. Um, but in the meantime, I quite like... A moose rot, which is a combination of a moose and a carrot. <laughs> I like but it. But when I first thought that, I, it said a combination of an animal and a vegetable. And I was like, oh, you mean like salmon and sushi rice? But I think I may have been missing the point there. Also, neither of those is a vegetable. Uh, sushi rice is definitely a vegetable. Is rice as a vegetable? Yeah. It's not meat. I mean, it's as much of a vegetable as paprika. Uh, paprika's a pepper. Chilli pepper. Paprika? Paprika. One of those is a chilli pepper. Plus, we are getting that off Wikipedia. I'm not sure if that is a fully canonical octonaut's name. Andrew Hogg asked, is there a piece of media you waited over a decade for and it actually lived up to expectations? Um, yeah. Which we, which is such a good question that I think we should bring it back at a future episode. Um, not least because I've got a hook to tie it to one of the Hugo-nominated fan casts. Um, oh, hello. Which talks about books that haven't come out yet, which is not is kind of irritating. But they were saying that um, Susanna Clarke's Piranesi, Piranesi um, lives up to expectations. There is nothing like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And he also says he's looking forward to further updates on LOF, the Liz-only fan fund. It's not clear to me whether this is only for visiting Liz, whether this is only for Liz to visit, or both. But, yeah, got to get that going. I think this is a follow-up to our previous discussion where I threatened to send you a map and point out where Australia was, if you recall. It could well be. And basically my own, you know... Uh, fan fun zone for now. <laughs> and Mark very kindly described Octothorpe as similar to listening, sitting in the bar, listening to the three of you having a conversation and being unable to get a word in edgeways. <laughs> it's not untrue. To which he said, Alison will add, so exactly like that then. <laughs> and... Also, I will say that Claire has mentioned a similar sentiment to me, um, but she says she always wins the arguments she has with us because we can't answer back to her witty repartee. So this is actually a feature rather than a bug, I feel. If you if you want to have the last word, just mutter under your breath as you listen, and it will go well. I, I 
thought that was a huge benefit of podcasts generally. I mean, I'm forever shouting at podcasts. And now you shout during them, as do we all. Another man called Joseph Norton sent me an email to the podcast email address thanking me for putting mp3s of the vinyl albums of the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy on my website which i did ages and ages ago because i have the vinyl albums and they're different to the original radio series so i recorded them um from my dad's turntable using some um audio recording software uh, on a laptop and then because no one else had put them online i thought well you know no one's gonna lose out since then there has been a vinyl release of Hitchhikers, but I think it is a vinyl release of the BBC show. I don't think it's a vinyl release of the original vinyl um, albums. Uh, but yes, so he said thank you. And you're welcome, Joseph. Glad you're enjoying them. And thanks for listening to the podcast. It's nice to know that we have listeners who aren't actually already our personal friends. <laughs> it's not. It's actually not 100% clear to me whether he listens to the podcast or whether he found the podcast by Googling my name. Either one, that's an outcome. That is an outcome. Because, I mean, there are so, I mean, he, he might have found your professional work. He might have found your Hugo finalist things, yes. you know. Yeah. You're, you're, you have a wide internet footprint. <laughs> then we have Claire's. Claire Briarly. Get me. I can pronounce it now. Um, and her letter of comment... Um, does any, do either of you want to go through that? You mean, would you like me to do some summarising? Because you've done quite a lot of summarising on this podcast already. I'm worried the listeners will be very bored of my voice. Yes, so Claire sent us a letter, uh, having caught up with episodes six and seven, uh, wishing all the best to John's microphone, which is no longer unwell, and revealing she has drunk a beer called Edgelord. She does not reveal uh, whether she knew the meaning of the name of the beer at that time. She's also asked if Stow Shirts make a grumpy old fart cap for for Worldcon X Division heads. Um, anything can be. Things can be arranged. They do now. <laughs> anything can be arranged with Stow Shirts. Um, so Claire is... Pretty much. We, we discussed briefly, I think, this is how you lose the time war, which I think I had read and you guys had not read, correct? Not yet. Still I haven't. I have still not read it. It is on my iPad waiting. It's very nice because I, I enjoyed it and thought it was good, but it did not speak to my heart. Claire's written in because it did speak to her heart uh, about the love story and about finding people and how uh, truly distinct that is from sex and or friendship. And also recommended the books by Nick Bantock called Griffin and Sabine, which I have never read, but I might look into because they're apparently uh, a reminder of this is how you lose a time war. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it because I have obviously heard an awful lot about it at this point. Um, I'm currently reading um, the Becky Chambers one, which I do not remember the name of. I think it's To Be Taught If Fortunate. To Be Taught If Fortunate. And the reason I'm currently reading that is that because in the Hugo photo packet it only came as a PDF... And I currently have a ebook version on loan from the library, so I can read it in a slightly nicer format, but I have to read it first. Um, but after that, I shall probably do the rest of the novellas. So I will hopefully have listened to it by next time. I'm sure nobody with any influence in these matters ever reads this, but I have taken the view that if your 
submission to the Hugo Voter Packet only comes in PDF format, then I will deprioritize it in my Hugo reading. And seeing as I never managed to get all the Hugo reading done anyway, um, this means that you are less likely to get my vote. I am sure I'm not the only person, but I thought I wanted to say this publicly so that the people out there who make the decision to put these things in as PDFs um, know that it's not actually as, as efficient as putting things in as EPUBs or any other um, ebook format. And if you're doing it because you're worried that people will pirate the ebook, then you're being a bit silly because obviously the PDF is sufficient for people to be able to do that. Um, anyway, I know that this has no effect, but I just kind of want to shout into the void occasionally. Yeah, that's fair. No, and I, I will say I do agree with you in that if a book is only available in a format that I don't, that I find stressful to read, or if a book is not available in full, then I'll try and read it. I'll try and borrow it from the library. But if the book doesn't come through by the time the deadline happens, then, yeah, that, that will mean I don't vote for it. Um, last year, that was The Calculating Stars by Mary Robinette Cole. Um, but then that won. So I'm not sure that my um, failure to read it in time really affected it meaningfully at all. It was a fantastic book. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Think it deserved to win. Did not read it until after the ceremony because that was when my Hugh, uh, my library hold came through. Um, the, I know it's never up. To, it's really never up to the authors, is it? It's, it's decisions made at a publisher level. So I don't know to what effect, to what extent that could be helped. I agree with Alison entirely on the PDF thing, um, but I also read 100 pages of The Calculating Stars and decided, nope, and put it down and read something else. So, <laughs> I've, I've, Not I've every book has to be for everyone. No, and I, I felt quite pleased myself for reading it and going, no, this is, this, is not my, this is not my thing. I'm putting it down and reading another book. And I was on a reading holiday at the time, so there were probably several hundred other books around for me to choose from. Did anyone write to us suggesting things that we could read or do to improve our um, awareness of Black Lives Matter and related issues, John? No. Have either of you done anything to enhance your um, awareness of your white privilege? Yes. I have read Superior by Angela Saini, and that was very good. I think that it helped me see kind of some of the issues around ethnicity as as a kind of categorization system and I read it while on strike as part of the Black in the Ivory slash Black Lives in STEM strikes which happened um, a week or two ago now. I've also bought How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi um, and also looking forward to reading that but I have not yet read it. Um, I've also started monthly donations to a couple of the organisations that were on the Google sheet of organisations that we had in last week's show notes. So that's what I did since last time. Either of you do anything? I um I put a load of books on my hold list for my local library, um, which were all extremely popular and will no doubt come through in about November. But I mean, they will come through and I will then read them. Um, I listened to some podcasts by black creators. 
The one I enjoyed most was is called Nerds of Prey and hasn't actually had a new episode out since December, so I'm not entirely sure I want to criti- I want to mention it specifically. Um, I like some other ones, but they're more in my kind of normal tech and scientific niches rather than um, science fiction and fantasy ones. I'm still looking for some recommendations there. And I also donated some money to some, some um, to charities that work with disadvantaged people and with um, legal defence for people in the UK. So my recommendation would be uh, there is a list posted by, uh, so Sirens Conference, which runs every year in the US, have posted a list of 50 works by uh, black authors, which I am basically working my way through. I've read some of them, some of them going on my wish list. I a couple of which I actually owned and will be now be coming to the top of my reading list. I am like making an effort to read more books by black authors and buy more books by black authors, um, especially uh, over the next couple of weeks, as I think there was a drive to try and buy them in a particular week and thus bring them to the top of the bestseller lists. So I read uh, The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, which is not science fictional, but is uh, another you know spectacular novel from him quite a harrowing read um about uh two young black men in uh a juvenile facility in the u.s in the 1960s which is great um like john i'm also an academic so i've been reading a lot of the black in the ivory stories about um uh the experiences of black academics and trying to think of ways that we can help in this area and I have also donated to some organisations from the list we put in the show notes last week. Claire also sent me, um, she sent, I think, many people a, wheat, a, fan, a short fanzine about Weetabix. She didn't just send a short fanzine about Weetabix, she sent Weetabix. Have you not had your Weetabix yet? I, I have had my Weetabix, but um, I, have also had I my don't Weetabix. want to talk. What? I have also had my Weetabix. Oh, she sent you Weetabix as well. There was a picture of an entire carrier bag full of Weetabix. I don't know to whom Weetabix was sent, but I think it was a large operation. I think I may have failed to... Because obviously I got a Weetabix because I had sent Weetabix. Yes. Um, my Weetabix arrived completely unharmed, but it did not go large letter. I think the the question of how you get a Weetabix through at large letter rate without harming it is still is still an open one. Um, yes. That presumably means that 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 you'll have a Weetabix impounded by Thai customs at some point, Liz. Um, I don't believe Claire has sent me a Weetabix, if only because she's not at any point asked for my uh, post address in order to send me a Weetabix. So unless she somehow intuited my address or she decided to just put Weetabix care of Liz Bathy Thailand, hopefully they have not impounded a Weetabix. <laughs> Has anyone tried just sending a Weetabix to Claire Briley, Fishlifter Towers, Croydon and seeing if it arrives? It might arrive. The Royal Mail can really surprise you. And Claire Briley, I assume, is not a terrifically common name. Right, so if you work for the Royal Mail and you find a package in 50 years when you listen back to this historical record that looks to be some fossilised Weetabix, now you know where it came from. Fossilised Weetabix looks exactly like Weetabix. (laughs) Well, I will say 
And I also will say um, that I did, in response to her fanzine about Weetabix, implore her to write three more fanzines about Weetabix so I could nominate them for Best Fanzine at the Hugo Awards, which I think would be brilliant. I'm not super hopeful it would win, but I'd definitely nominate it. I, I think we should be going for a new category, um, Best Fanzine about Weetabix. <laughs> Start the process. On the subject of <laughs> Wusfus procedures... Have we now finished follow-up, John? We have finished follow-up, Alison. Some of you may be aware that Con Zealand is being held online this year, uh, but this is not stopping the World Science Fiction Society holding a physical business meeting in Wellington because, according to File 770, and I quote, it cannot be moved online. What do I think about that, peeps? The Octothorpe Rant. <laughs> See, we've got a new show segment name. <laughs> Why can it not be moved online? Like, I have not delved into the Worcester's Constitution for a little while. So I, I can't remember like what the exact wording is. Is it that we literally can't move it online because something says you cannot do it online? Or is it that we can't move it online because there's not a way of doing all the things a business meeting needs to do online? Or it's some other reason? It's possible that we cannot do it online because Wusfus has a brush up its collective arse. <laughs> so here we're in a world where the UK Parliament, the mother of parliaments run by Erskine May since the beginning of time, manages to move itself online in a couple of weeks just by basically going, huh, does it make sense to not do this? No, it does not. Let's go online. Whereas Wusfus, run by, as we know, Robert's Rules of Order, goes, oh no, we have to have a physical meeting in the location specified. Because, I mean, if if Wellington was bombed, what would they have done? <laughs> you know, I mean, you can see them going, oh, it's ground zero, but we have to be there because the Wusfus Constitution requires us to be there to hold our physical business meeting and there is no other way to do it. And the Worldcon will come down around our ears if we do not hold a physical meeting. Now, there is another argument that says... Actually, you know, we could have brought it online, but in fact, having a, a micro meeting on site is the sensible way forward, because otherwise every law, rules lawyer in Wusfus would, would just... I'm trying to think of a, of a metaphor here that's not extremely sexist and a bit dodgy over the prospect of arguing about this for three solid years. Right. Anyway, that's all I had to say on the subject. How does that relate to... How does that compare to your rant? Ha <laughs> um, I don't know. It can. It depends how passionate I am about the rant. Um, as far as I can tell, and I am, I am interpreting a constitution, and I am not a lawyer. And to be honest, you'd need to be a lawyer to appreciate all of the nuances and subtleties of the Wusfus Constitution. Um, but as far as I can tell, the problem is. Article 5, Section 5.1, Subsection 5, which states that the quorum for the business meeting shall be 12 members of the society physically present. Now, I have double-checked, and as far as I can tell, the word physically is not actually defined anywhere in the Constitution, so I assume that they're relying on a definition... Um, 
According to the dictionary, uh, my dictionary defines physically as in a way that relates to the real world and things perceived through the senses as opposed to the mind. So I would argue that if you wanted to you and you had the mental gymnastics present, you could interpret that to allow an online meeting as long as everyone was at the online meeting and you could see them with your senses. Um, but perhaps there would be a point of order raised and people would get very frowny. Um, it does also say in the Constitution that any member of the Worldcon should be allowed to uh, attend the meeting. So I'm also sort of tempted to arrange some sort of splinter group where we all threaten to attend the meeting in strict contravention of international law unless they don't hold it. And I wonder what they would do then. Um, but yeah, it's, it's ludicrous. And it comes down to the point made earlier in the episode about if you have a set of rules that is sufficiently rigorous that it does not permit for certain things that may go wrong to go wrong, then those rules can end up with, with silly situations, like having a situation where 12 people have to meet in Wellington to have the business meeting. And I would argue that if it does have to be held at the Worldcon and the Worldcon is in cyberspace, a physical business meeting in Wellington is in contravention of the Worcester's Constitution and should be immediately disallowed. I'm, I'm genuinely like, this constitution does not provide for this circumstance, so you've got to do some imaginative reading of the rules. But given that you have to do some imaginative reading of the rules, why on earth not imaginatively read the rules to allow a virtual business meeting that we could actually attend and participate in? This is the end of my rant. Because they don't wanna. Because they think it would be too hard. I feel that the Eastercon managed to make this happen perfectly adequately and that it doesn't seem i mean obviously we did it without the benefit of a constitution or rules of engagement we just did sensible stuff in in a way that that was kind of quite english of us um you know i i, I don't feel that that they've necessarily taken the best option and there's clearly nothing to stop them having a meeting in which people join physically, but the meeting is also online and people can make comments and suggestions online using some form of Q&A system. I feel that with rules lawyering like that, John, you have a great future ahead of you at the Worcester's Business Meeting. <laughs> you take that back, Batty! <laughs> How do you feel about mornings? I mean, I am... I don't like that the fact that the business meeting is held at the Worldcon because it means I can't go to panels or the bar. And to my mind, the exciting things about Worldcon are panels and the bar. So, uh, yeah. So, so I guess I have less ranty opinions, um, which are mostly just because I'm, I think, less bothered. I'm okay with them deciding this year. Okay, um, we can't do a virtual one, and it says we should have an actual physical gathering of 12 people. So let's have a physical gathering of 12 people to the absolute minimum and punt this to next year. But I do think next year needs to be thinking about this now and working out how they will do a virtual business meeting if necessary, or if not, how they can put in place all the structures in 2021 to enable us to do this in the future, because we don't know when this might happen again. But 2021 is a good bet. For being online or for... For when it might happen again. I mean, I think the most likely outcome for the Worldcon next year is not that it doesn't happen physically, it's that most of its foreign visitors are effectively disenfranchised, along with a lot of the older and sicker members of the Worldcon community, which is quite a lot of people. Um, and Worldcon has a tendency to be 
um, the convention for a bunch of people in the northeastern United States anyway. And having the business meeting only open to those people would be a major problem that I think they need to address. Is that fair? That's not too ranty. Was that ranty? That was quite ranty. That ranty, and it is completely fair. It's not going to land well with Wussfuss fandom, who regard any attempt to change or modernise anything as if you are literally the devil. Um, the comments on the File 770 article declaring this are proof of that. I think, in general, if the Wussfuss constitution doesn't allow for this sort of thing, it needs changing. And if the Wussfuss constitution cannot be changed, or if the Wussfuss business meeting cannot be held virtually, we need to have a serious think about whether that means those two things are fit for purpose. Because I would argue it means they are not, and we need to seriously rethink them. The fact that world cons were held completely successfully up until 1980 without any formal constitution rather makes me think we don't need it. But perhaps we do, and perhaps it's very important. But in that case, we need to fix the problems with it. I think any political system that responds to a crisis that requires immediate and um, well thought through, but but nevertheless speedy action with a decision to delay absolutely everything for a year is not is demonstrating that it's not fit for purpose. You know, it's doing you know, it's 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 demonstrating that it does not work at the thing it's supposed to do, unless the thing it's supposed to do is retard change. And obviously, there are people in the in Wussfuss fandom for whom retarding change is a feature, not a bug. And I don't know, I feel like there's something every episode that causes me to go, and you call yourself science fiction fans. Though they might say, but that's why we want to be careful of change, because, you know, it, it, we've read those books and it never comes out well. Our email address is octothorpecast at gmail.com. And we will read it, we promise. I know our, our, our um, history is not good on this, but we will. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the eighth episode of the Octothorpe podcast, which will come out on the 24th of June, 2020. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Yay, podcast. Have a fantastic weekend, Liz. Started strong, but almost immediately devolved into passive aggressive inside Livio podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm not sure if that was one of our more coherent podcasts. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. Where are you putting these? At the bottom. Oh, I see. Good. We've been sending us nice letters of comment and they think we've been ignoring them. Is this like for weeks and weeks and weeks? No. I think Andrew January knows we're not ignoring him. But we do apparently have one from Mark Olson. Two from Mark Olson. Oh, my God. Oops. Uh, I am John. I am bad at emails. Um, hi, Liz. We're also, hello, we're also bad at Twitter. Um, oh, I like the letter from Hulk. It's very nice, isn't it? It is. Oh, now I can't hear you at all. Maybe this can be. Uh... <laughs> oh no! Maybe this can be an all letter of comment uh, episode. I was actually thinking that because I don't think we've got a lot of. I don't know if we've got a lot of topics. I've got the big business meeting, but like, I don't want to go on about that too much because it's a bit niche. And also, at some point, like, just complaining about things gets wearing. 
because that's yeah. what ATP does. And what my favourite podcast in the whole world. I yeah, and I respect that. Uh, I was very confused. So I'm like ATP. Do you mean adenosine triphosphate? Probably <laughs> not. All tomorrow's no. parties? No, also not that podcast that you and Alison like. All right, fine. Or the um, or the like tennis pro circuit. The problem with ATP is that because. It, the, the thing that typifies the problem with ATP is because they complain all the time, it means that when they're complaining about things that actually need people to pay attention, people ignore them because it's just ATP complaining again. And the thing that make, makes this the most obvious is when they were complaining about the MacBook Pro keyboards, no one paid attention. And then as soon as other people started complaining about the MacBook Pro keyboards, everyone was like, oh, this is a real problem. And the point where you complain so often that the things you complain about become non-remarkable is the point at which you complain too much. Like... If you're just relentlessly negative about everything, it removes any value to your criticism. So I get a little bit frustrated. Relentlessly negative about everything. There's this week's title. So what are our topics for today then, John? We're going to look at letters of comment, Alison. I've put them in the show notes. And there are thousands of them. There are four? So we can start with a big old apology. Yes. Plus the new one from Claire. And I think we owe a debt of thanks to Claire because if it had not been for her mentioning that we weren't getting our emails, we would not have known we were not getting our emails. We would have believed we were podcasting into a void. Yes, also Mark sent us an email about... John, just copy and paste them and we'll sort the like line spacing out later. Because <laughs> I, mean, I can see okay. you doing it. Yeah. And also, I mean, the vegetables are great. I, I do not know what that is. But I am curious. Well, you haven't watched Octonauts, have you? Probably no. you have not watched Octonauts. Is, is this, this the, the Welsh show that Farah likes? I believe I'm not sure it is Welsh, but you can get it in Welsh, which is so delightful. Apparently, there's some transcripts. We have a, the other thing in our Gmail thing is a pile of things from Otter.ai saying we've transcribed your podcast. Would you like to go and look at it? So yes. at some point, we will do that. Are you going anywhere nice this weekend, Liz? Yes, I'm just going to go and sit in a house with a pool and I am taking my inflatable pool hammock, my inflatable pool drinks holder and my waterproof Kindle cover. And that's my weekend. So you're basically having a long weekend in a large bath? Yeah, pretty much. It does sound nice, though. I I feel like a holiday, a relaxing holiday somewhere warm would quite suit me about now. I think, crucially... I haven't left Bangkok at this point for six months, which is probably the longest. Oh, no, that's not true. I haven't left Bangkok for three months, and I've spent most of that time kind of in my own neighbourhood with only occasional uh, visits to any other bit of the city. I am feeling quite cooped up, as I assume most of you are. So it feels like now is a good time to take the chance to go somewhere a whole three hours away, because I don't know how long we will all have that chance to do that. So we've got to the point where having a weekend away seems like the most enormous luxury. Yeah. So we're all very we're all very um envious of you. I guess the question is does our podcast feeling a lot like a conversation that we've had in the bar put off people who have not already had a conversation in a bar with us in the past? Right to octothorpecast at gmail.com. We promise we'll read it this time. That actually feels like the title of this episode. We'll promise we really will read it this time. 
So Marianne tells me that title of your sex tape comes directly from Brooklyn Nine-Nine and had no antecedents before that. And I was quite fascinated by that. Um, that it, it comes more more from that's what she said. And then, of course, for people who are, as, who are 10 years older than me, people 10 years older than me used to say, as the actress, as the actress said, to the said to the bishop, yeah, which is which is exactly the same thing as title of your sex tape. I I think it is the same. It is the same um, linguistic construction. I'm not sure that's apropos of anything, but but apparently it's Brooklyn Nine Nine. Um, Brooklyn Nine Nine is a fine fine show, which has the problem that all shows about the police have of being a show about all... the police. Now, yeah, well, all television shows about the police have a structural problem with them. Um, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine is not an exception, which is that they they almost invariably show either the police in general or the particular policeman who is the focus of the show as being um, a very upstanding member of society who does no wrong or does very little wrong in kind of peccadillo ways rather than... Um, oh, the Sweeney, I suppose. Well, I mean, I think we have maybe, uh, maybe this is not entirely on the subject of our podcast, but there's been quite a lot of interesting writing about this of how like most police things are procedurals and kind of to do a procedural kind of requires that the the police end up being sort of the 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 protagonist. And, you know, you can wrap it up neatly because they catch the bad guys. But then you get things like the shield where the policeman is definitely not one of the good guys or you get something like the wire where the police are you know sometimes good and sometimes bad but you know presented as this force which has all these different effects and ramifications on a neighborhood um and i think there's some more examples i am now going to pitch my lockdown show which is a wussfus procedural drama <laughs> thereby bringing us back on topic